0: Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda White, Director of Institutional Content at Connexus Financial, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to visit investmentmagazine.com.au and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this episode. I'm joined today by Timer Hyatt, who is the chief operating officer for PGM, the investment management business of Prudential, based in New Jersey. Timer has global oversight for strategy, thematic research, operations, and innovation, and marketing and communications across PGM. He also oversees the institutional advisory and solutions group, which provides portfolio level advice to institutional clients globally. Welcome to you, Timer. Thank
1: you, Amanda. Thank you for having me.
0: PGM's thematic research team develops research that provides CIOs and investment boards with independent perspectives on long term macro trends to help them meet their investment objectives. And it's just completed the latest instalment in its mega trend series, Reshaping Services. And that's going to be the basis of our discussion today. The paper draws on the views of more than 70 investment professionals across PGM, as well as leading academics, technologists, industry analysts, and venture investors. It looks at the risks and opportunities in services in developed and emerging markets. But before we get to the detail of the services sector, Timer, I wanted to ask you about megatrends more broadly. At PGM, you spend a deal of time looking at megatrends. What do you define as the key megatrends driving markets today and what's your advice for investors in how to navigate those? Well,
1: with all the uncertainty uh, and chaos that's surrounded. it, uh COVID 19, Amanda, I think we certainly spend a lot of time on short term volatility, on tactical allocations. But you're absolutely right. The kind of backbone of BGM's investment approach is understanding long term trends, secular trends, and making sure our long term investment pieces and themes, our focus is aligned with that. So, we spend a lot of time on these big secular trends that we think have pretty major investment implications, and I'd say the ones that have struck out to me. We've been doing this for a while now. Has been uh, have been technology, uh, and that's something we return to uh, and we we'll chat more about. It's been uh, demographics, and particularly the aging population. Not just in markets, not just in Australia and the U.S. and Italy but even in, uh, in emerging markets and, and well beyond China. And then I'd say it's climate change, which is uh, so thoroughly mispriced in asset markets and security markets at the moment. But we do believe is going to be increasingly priced into securities, into assets, and investors uh, need to be on the right side of uh, that repricing and make sure that they are looking at climate risk when they make investments. So those, those are the three... That stand out. I would say what's probably most interesting is the nexus between these trends and how they reinforce each other and therefore kind of provide the foundations for some of our investment thinking across equities, fixed income, real estate alternatives, all our businesses at PGM.
0: Certainly, I think uh, inflation is top of mind for investors at the moment. I know PGM's got some, some, some views on that. Can you expand a little bit on that before we get talking about services sector?
1: sure sure so um you know we we absolutely understand the supply chain shortages and the pent-up demand from the lockdowns that have led to a surge in just demand uh to lots of supply shortages and therefore prices rising across everything right from uh, from the cost of labor to the cost of uh, chips to uh you know, uh, supply shortages in in lots of key parts of the consumer market. Um, Our view is that it is transitory. Uh, That's our base case. And uh, that ultimately longer term secular downward pressures on pricing. That includes the global rate environment. That includes technology, much of which is, uh, you know, wage deflating in nature, we believe. Uh, That includes the aging of the world population. Many of the things we just talked about, Amanda, ultimately will mean that the kind of long-term consistent interest rate environment is going to be quite low and the long-term inflation environment is going to be quite benign. Now, we we do think about risk to that scenario, but our base case is very much a low for long interest rate environment and the inflation will go away. And I'd say, uh, you know, we do worry a little bit about inflation in certain sectors and areas, commodities, for example, in in some countries. But even more so, we worry about uh, central bank overreaction to inflation fears, even if they prove to be unfounded, and overcorrection, if you will, uh, with rates uh, being uh, increased by central banks and spinning the world into another recession. So I'd say base case, low inflation. We absolutely keep in mind the tail risk that you could have high inflation in certain segments and countries. And we do spend a fair amount of time worrying about positioning our portfolio for central bank overreaction to even the perception of inflation and what it means for recessions.
0: I think we could have a whole podcast conversation on that topic to, timer, but let's, let's look at the services sector now. It represents two-thirds of the global GDP and three-quarters of the workforce in developed markets, so certainly worth um, spending some time on. In this paper, reshaping services, you argue that after 20 years of stability, services are on the cusp of a major disruption. So can you talk to us through that finding, in that particular finding, and and what's at the source of this disruption?
1: Absolutely. Listen, there have been many waves of technological disruption through history from, you know, the steam engine and the radio to electricity and, and onwards, uh, the internet revolution and the PC revolution in the in the nineties and and noughts, uh, we think uh, that we are at at the cusp of many of the technologies that have decimated and transformed retail and manufacturing are finally arriving and knocking at the doors of the services sector. And those are things such as uh, big data and crop data, AI and ML, cloud computing, Things that we've all heard about, by the way, there's some things that are excluded from the list that we think are a little, little overhyped, including the public blockchain and, uh, and and drones and 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 maybe even uh, some, you know, the hype around automated uh, vehicles. But there are a range of very foundational technology that are coming into services and will transform it. Um, and I think there's some very interesting lessons about how this is going to be different in services than it was in retail and manufacturing. And that's probably the thing that struck me most as we talked to uh, 70 investment professionals across PGM and kind of saw that kind of trend uh, trend emerge across different asset classes, Amanda.
0: Yeah, so let's talk a little bit in contemporary terms here, Timer. What impact has has COVID and the pandemic and disruption to the economy had on, on this disruption in the services sector? Has it um, enhanced it? Has it Elevated it as it had, you know, has it had an impact?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think services uh, has been uh, impacted by COVID nineteen in terms of these technology trends, by COVID nineteen and the lockdown uh, catalyzing many of the technology trends that were nascent in services, and I'm thinking of things like telemedicine. I'm thinking about the ease with which many people who never before had done retail, online groceries, buying apples and oranges uh, on the internet and having it delivered to their home. I'm thinking about how many of us moved even more of our financial transactions online, even in some of the you know, less technologically advanced developed markets where this was kind of uh, you know more of a bricks and mortar culture previously. And, of course, all the logistics and distribution that drove that uh, massive surge in online purchases. So I absolutely think COVID-19 has transformed many sectors. We could have probably held separate podcast on real estate. But uh, in terms of services, it has catalyzed and accelerated some of the trends, which made it even more relevant to, to write and share this paper now, to be honest.
0: So let's let's delve into it a little bit. Um, your paper focuses on three sectors, financial services, which of course is doubly listen, interesting to our listeners as not mm-hmm. only do they invest in financial services, but they operate in the sector. Um, you also looked at healthcare and transportation and logistics. I want to kind of delve into each of these separately and, and look at the nuances of those particular sectors in terms of who the winners and losers will be and the detail of, of each sector and, and what to look out for. So, um, and then later in, in the conversation, we'll look specifically at, at geographical implications. But for now, let's just look at those three sectors. So, starting with financial services, can you can you give us a little bit more insight into what you're seeing, what you're predicting uh, in terms of winners and losers?
1: Absolutely, Uh, let me make one broad uh, statement at the beginning that maybe encompasses uh, much of services and then we can dig a little deeper into financial services, Amanda, if that makes sense. I think that one of the differences between the services sectors and retail and manufacturing is that the incumbents within the service sectors that invest in technology that do technology driven MA, that are willing to cannibalize their own models, will survive uh, much more in greater numbers and with greater success and with bigger moats around their businesses than we saw in retail and manufacturing, where so many of the story names got wiped out. And, and that's because one of the common themes across many service sectors is that it is uh, extremely expensive to acquire new customers. You know, we are more willing to jump to a new app to book a restaurant or to order apples from the local grocery store than we are willing to change our healthcare providers or our financial advisors. Uh, clients tend to be stickier for that reason. In addition, many services, financial services and healthcare, come to mind again are heavily regulated, and that just creates tech inertia in these sectors. It's harder for new entrants to come and completely revolutionize something. And regulators are extremely wary in learning and understanding new technologies before they allow new people in. Very different from Facebook and uh, and, um, e-gaming, for example. And I think also the incumbent service firms, particularly the ones that we think will be winners have seen this movie before and are embracing new technologies rather than trying to salvage their legacy models. So I do think you'll see a much greater share of incumbents survive in other sectors. And I think that's one important common theme uh, across these sectors. Now, now jumping into financial services, which, which you know, beyond the interest of, uh, of, of, of the listeners of this podcast are also you know, the largest sector within services, of course. I do think you'll see a bit of a bifurcation There are some areas where these incumbents will truly shine. And I think two good examples are robo-advisors. There was so much talk around the mints and betterments and personal capitals and other robo-advisors that would change the world and dismantle wealth management. And in fact, you've seen that the large wealth managers that have the client bases have essentially built the fancier digital user interfaces have found a way of creating a cheaper model or have simply acquired these robo-advisors and become more powerful themselves and the robo-advisors could never overcome the wealth management challenge. So I think the first uh, lesson for investors is observe the incumbents carefully and see which ones are kind of making that transition and which ones aren't, but many will survive. They do not face obsolescence stress. Some do and, and select those. And that's true probably across a lot of uh, you know, insurance uh, underwriting as well. There are a couple of niche areas where we think there's an opportunity for venture capital, for uh, private equity, uh, for small cap stocks to, to rise. And, and the two I'd highlight are neobanks and fintech platforms. Uh, we do think neobanks are actually not trying to steal the customers of the existing incumbents, which as I just said is expensive and quite hard, but they're trying to go after unbanked populations that were too expensive or didn't have enough profit margins for old-fashioned bricks-and-mortar technology to serve them, and uh, and we see companies like uh, Dave with over ten million, uh, yeah, you know, users in the customers in the U.S., uh, many others, uh, New Bank in Brazil. I was just reading about uh, a new company that was financed by Google and Temasek in uh, in India. We see a range of these new banks that are founded. Digital only virtual banking presence that do we believe have a niche. They come with their risks around underwriting, around particularly if they go a little bit more into lending. But that's one area definitely for investors to look at. And the second is payment platforms, which were, you know, the MasterCards and Visas of the world were ripe for disruption. I think they were particularly ripe in emerging markets, which, you know, never had the bricks and mortar credit card and banking ATMs anyway they're largely cash economies and they're leapfrogged to kind of the new digital payment platforms. Uh, you know, examples would include Square and, and Lightspeed among, among many, uh, obviously, you have the big Chinese payment platforms. And um, and those two, I think, serve a need that the incumbents didn't quite serve and it'll be hard for them to uh, catch up with these new breeder firms, which, which really offer better efficiency and effectiveness in, in lots of ways. So, so those are areas in financial services where we do feel there is uh, room for new players who could be quite, uh, quite dramatically successful in these areas.
0: And then let, let's move into um, into talking about some of the other sectors. And that's you know really clear in financial services. There's a couple of things I want to pick up on, on later with regards to the incumbents. But um, is that also true for healthcare and transportation and logistics?
1: yeah i think in uh, in healthcare some of the biggest trends are clearly and you know covid really accelerated this was was just the virtualization of healthcare uh, with uh, just a whole bunch of new telehealth platforms that that emerged and uh, covered a very large percentage of uh, of patients across developed markets uh, we're seeing a big surge in personalization uh, you know smartwatches bracelets uh, just direct-to-consumer generic testing kits uh, for, for, you know, genetic makeup. There's a whole whole growth in, in personalization. And, 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 and much more refined segmentation, you know, small niche groups. We now have the technology and the data back to that, uh, you know, foundational technology that allows us to take what were two fragmented groups earlier and creating targeted offering for people with uh, diabetes, for particular subgroups of the women and disabled and so on and make that into a potentially profitable model as well. So, and we're not even talking here about the non-services piece of healthcare, like, you know, obviously the the miracle speed with which, you know, the vaccines were developed. We are talking about the services sector, which has been quite slow to adapt, but we do feel there are definite trends in these specialized healthcare platforms, in uh, personalized and digital medicine, in just apps that help you get care outside of the doctor's office. These, I think, are all growth areas that we absolutely look at when we make investments. And then maybe to broaden it a little bit, I do think senior housing that has been quite focused, you know, it's a big market in the U.S., but I absolutely see it and our real estate professionals absolutely see that becoming something that might expand into more and more markets. I mean, look at the demographic wave that's coming in, in China. But we do see that sort of continued care retirement communities uh, as the population ages uh, with good health services embedded within them will be another growth opportunity uh, which investors can participate in and support.
0: And then finally, uh, Taima, what about the trends in transportation and logistics and, and some of the nuances in that sector?
1: So lots going on in logistics uh, again accelerated by covid maybe just to hit a couple Amanda is uh, one uh, we think that the you know that the sunset for the internal combustion engine will be a long sunset it will take a long time uh, for a variety of reasons uh, but that's something that you know just the infrastructure for example supporting uh, uh, you know, gas-powered, car, uh, petrol-driven cars is uh, is massive around the world. Uh, there's a big path dependency and an incumbency advantage, uh, and combined with that, you see still that the numbers for automated vehicles, the regulatory pressures in the U.S. because of safety, the labor concerns in Europe because of you know potential job losses uh, by automating truck driving. Um, China perhaps is a bit of an exception that's accelerating in that area. But uh, but we think EVs will take longer than people expect uh, beyond certain closed loops and certain kind of trucking circuits and a couple of you know uh, emerging markets that are kind of making the bet there. And uh, good old-fashioned uh, internal combustion engine infrastructure and cars. And then EVs certainly, given the focus on ESG, the focus on climate change, the fact that the technology exists now will will grow and will be another area to to focus on. Uh, Underpinning all this, of course, is also just the fact that uh, we've seen a massive increase in opportunities in the digital infrastructure supporting logistic companies. The fact that every truck that delivers something to your doorstep can now be tracked at every every second. And the big uh, delivery ecosystem like UPS, DHL, FedEx, uh, are, are really quite forward in figuring out how to kind of own that digital chain or partner with that digital chain that manages supply chains much more effectively than they did before. We see big opportunities in, in that, both in private and public equity as well.
0: So, you mentioned a couple of times emerging markets, and I'm interested in the geographical implications of this research. So, you know, are there two bifurcated markets between developed and emerging markets, or are these trends um pervasive across across both i mean in particular i guess emerging markets we've got some regulatory issues at play is the is it does innovation look the same can, can you make some observations around emerging versus developed
1: sure listen i think tech clash is actually going to be a universal theme that straddles emerging and developed markets you've seen what's happening in china right now with the uh, with the tech companies um and we certainly see what's happening in terms of what we call tech lash, kind of the regulatory backlash against technology, uh, everything from, you know, the murky roots of blockchain and the inability to know who's on the other side of the transaction, to privacy issues with big data, to bias with algorithms, uh, and safety concerns with AVs. Uh, but I do think, to your point, that uh, technolog- technology-driven disruption is more likely and is happening at a faster pace in emerging markets. And that's primarily due to the lack of legacy infrastructure and the absence of path dependency. You do not have a massive, to take financial system, you know, sector as an example, you don't have a massive bricks and mortar infrastructure that you have to overcome that advantage from incumbents. These are cash-based economies. Many of the rural areas in emerging markets have no Banking sector to speak of, and therefore it is much easier for kind of this leapfrogging to happen for new payment platforms, digital banks, new banks, and so on. And in some cases, and AV is probably the exception rather than the rule, you are seeing some emerging markets being a little more aggressive in providing regulatory and government support for the technology. Uh, China is a good example, right? Where you already have. Uh, discussions about uh, about robo taxis and other things that uh, you know many developed markets are still many steps behind
0: so let's talk a little bit uh, about the portfolio implications of all this timer and um you know couple, there's so much in this obviously um and thank you for so eloquently describing some of those themes that you picked up in the paper that will also be available alongside this podcast um for those that, that want to delve into it. But but really, it's important, I think, to look at the portfolio implications. Do you work with investors to look at these mega trends from a, a sort of top-down total portfolio view? Or you, do you think that it's more uh, on an asset class basis? Um, so that's the first question. And, and then sort of, you know, within that, one of the things I'm, I've been thinking about as you've been talking is, if, if incumbents will survive, does this become more of a stock-picking active kind of play um, in terms of trying to, trying to actually really pick the winners from losers. So just a couple of couple of things there.
1: Yeah, no, uh, a great all-encompassing question. I, I think you've got to do both, first of all. Uh, you know, we, we looked at some of the big public pension plans around the world that share their data, and if you look at the share of services in public equities, private equity, venture capital public and private fixed income, we we guesstimate that around one-third of every chief investment officer's portfolio is invested in services. You know, it's less than the GDP and labor share because obviously you've got real estate and some alternatives and, uh, and, and a lot of, you know, government bonds perhaps. Uh, but it's a pretty significant share. And so we think in addition to ensuring that every asset class member of your internal team or your asset manager is applying a technological lens to the services companies in their portfolio, in their buy or sell decisions, and seeing who will survive and who will fail. It is pretty important for the CIO to kind of look across the portfolio, assemble everybody, talk about these cross-cutting technologies uh, like the private blockchain. I'm pretty skeptical on uh, the near-term opportunity in the public blockchain, like uh, big data and AI and machine learning, uh, like cloud computing and say, okay, what are the implications for both obsolescence risk in my current holdings? Because some incumbents will survive, but not all of them. It's not that uh, everybody's built a moat, only those who are willing to engage in some creative destruction. And which new sectors will be high growth areas? How should we participate in some of these high growth technologies that we identify in the paper? So I think there's definitely a top-down CIO responsibility and role that, that's that's pretty clear, including kind of laying out some of the common themes about which kinds of incumbents will survive and, and which won't and, and what are some of the traits to, to look for in some of the common themes. Um, I think a second thing at the, at the portfolio level is the fact that you can lose sight of some of the complementary investments in the technology infrastructure underpinning all the service sector disruption and maybe is a little broader than services. But we see lots of opportunities in uh you know for example every time you do car sharing somebody's anonymizing at least in the us the numbers between the driver and the passenger you know that's kind of a pretty safe technology that is not kind of based on hype uh, that is maybe doesn't have a massive premium because of you know tweets but but actually has has real value but we see that in cloud computing we see that in hyperscale data centers we see a lot of companies providing the cybersecurity uh, for particularly cloud computing, uh, fiber optical networks, the telecom infrastructure. I think that's something again, that at the portfolio level, you've got to see what are the different ways I'm investing because you can hit this from real estate with data centers. You can hit it from infrastructure with uh, with fiber, but you can also access it in publicly listed companies. And some of this is in, is in private equity. Uh, I think staying close, uh, through conversations with asset managers and consultants on the regulatory trends and the regulatory backlash risk, which is quite high, particularly in the very regulated sectors like healthcare and financial services, and we're even seeing it elsewhere uh, across big tech, is, is again a role at the, at the CIO level. And, and finally, I'd say, um, Amanda, I think there's role we believe to engaging the boards of institutional investors uh, on, on really understanding what's happening in uh, terms of the underlying technologies and build a much higher kind of level of technology education among not just your chief technology officer or somebody who's in charge of data, but every in-house sector specialist, fixed income equities, public and private needs to understand the current wave of new technologies and you know, engage in those virtual or physical offsites sites with... Uh, with leaders in Silicon Valley or, or, you know, the equivalents of Silicon Valley and Shanghai and Cambridge and Tel Aviv and, and 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 in many places in Australia and make sure that they're marked to market on the current technology advances and the pace at which that will creep up.
0: So, Tama, we've, we've covered a lot of ground uh, here today. If there was sort of one or two high-level things that you really wanted uh, investors to get from this paper in terms of, the implications for the way that they do their jobs, what what would that be?
1: I had to pick two. Uh, I have many favourite uh, implications because I'm fascinated by what our investors invest in and how they've been thinking about it. But if I had to pick two, there would be one, you know, for many new technologies, the breathless media hype is far out in front of the investable reality today. Um, you know, I think public blockchain, I think part of the... EV, uh, automated vehicle world, I think drones. And uh, we've really tried to focus our investments and uh, uh, pieces on on things that are tangible and practical now rather than on futurism. And I think that's important, particularly when you also add the kind of uh, regulatory backlash that's going on against technologies now. Everything will take longer than we might think in in some areas, whereas others are much easier to uh, see these technologies changing things. and, and second, uh, I think it's important to realize that more incumbents would survive and build modes around their business than what we saw in retail and manufacturing. The leading incumbent service firms have seen this movie before in other sectors. They are embracing technologies. They are ways to empirically test whether they're doing so. They're willing to cannibalize their legacy models. And I think it's important to keep an eye on them and sort of understand that bifurcation of incumbents but that many more will survive and thrive in services compared to other sectors.
0: Well, Taima Hyde, it's been a very fascinating conversation. I highly recommend uh, for more information looking at the Reshaping Services uh, paper, which is part of the PGM Megatrends series. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today to talk that through. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Amanda. That was, uh, that was a great conversation. Thank you.